Yo, yo, welcome to back to Uncultured Bias. What I'm going to start doing is getting into an opening monologue, and I just want to actually first say thank you all for joining us. Um, if it's your first time joining the podcast, uh, you know, thank you. If you've uh, been a subscriber to the podcast on Apple or Spotify, we appreciate it. Um, we'll get into that in a moment. But, you know, what I wanted to talk about this week um, you might have noticed over several weeks there's been this outside noticeable conversation arising from the sea of the conservative talking points. And you may have heard it. It revolves around a concept of like wokeism or critical race theory. And up until this point, it's actually been actually now the recent conversations is America a racist country. Uh, the fact that you've actually, actually, actually have to ask this question or answer it should give anyone a pause for concern. But we're not having that conversation, are we? No, what we're really having is gyrating from like both sides of the political spectrum, uh, trying to state that America is not a racist country. And we'll address that in a moment. The argument that racism exists when people evaluate our past is the type of gaslighting that was used during post-Reconstruction. They try to reconstitute the idea of slavery as something that wasn't bad. That's actually literally what happened. You know, right after slavery happened and they, you know, they passed, you know, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment and, uh, you know, and they try to reintegrate black people into the American uh, uh, structure. They said, well, you know, we're a post-racial society. That was actually a quote. Um, it's at that time, actually, that, that Confederate statues actually and monuments started populating the American landscape because they tried to reconstitute that slavery actually wasn't that bad. This conversation permeated through the, the educational system and how we actually started viewing history and the American uh, concept, like what is America? And they understood that we can't view America in a true sense, so we have to view it in a popularized sense that makes it more digestible so it's propaganda the sympathy of white supremacy took note and transferred itself into our history books and our understanding of what america was now when you ignore the reality of america's greatest sin the conversation of what we are starts to be non-authentic it was also at the time that, not coincidentally, that Jim Crow was birthed, the underbelly of white supremacy, and that would also take another 100 years post-Reconstruction era. era. You know, America may not want to state if it feels as if it's a racist country, but I will tell you one thing. Denying the past of what, it's, of what it is is the rot of our present, and it's a surefire way to confirm the truth. So we'll get into all that, but again, I want to first say thank y'all for tuning in. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Uncultured Bias. Um, if you're on Apple, please continue to rate this episode or rate the past episodes. Leave a comment. That's how Apple um, gets into its algorithms. Um, you know, v- please visit the website of KamaraWilliams.com. If you're listen- listening on uh, KamaraWilliams.com, please check that out. Um, also engage on the website. Sometimes there's a blog there that. Um, is a filler for that week's episode or it allows us to um, get ideas for different podcasts. I definitely engage with people. Um, so, oh, and my final ask is that if you are in, in, on the pod, 
and you're enjoying it, share, share, share with your friends. We always say sharing is caring. All right, this week's uh, sponsorship, we want to thank Compass Tax Advisors uh, for just uh, sponsoring our program, and you can reach them at 850-273-7193 or mycompasstax.com. You could also uh, contact them by, well, I'm just going to give out my personal uh, friend's email, but just reach out to them at 850-273-7193. Let them know that Kamara Williams uh, sent you and uh, one of my best friends, Jamie, she's uh, the tax attorney, whether you need it for personal or uh, business. Our also, our, our, our other sponsors is a Keystone Global Real Estate. I've specialized in finding out real estate for your uh, personal or investment. Uh, you can contact Keystone at www.keystoneglobalrealestate.com or 407-680-8510. And finally, uh, Smith & Williams Trial Group. Uh, we specialize in probate and estate planning, and you can reach us at swtglaw.com. That's swtglaw.com. Or C. Williams at SWTGLaw.com or 888-SWTGLaw. All right, perfect. So I said that we were going to have a conversation, and I wanted to bring on uh, my frat, actually, uh, Andre Hamel. And um, yo, Andre, you still here? I'm here. How are you doing, brother? Yeah. Uh, Yo, uh, let the people know, you know, where you're from and... And you know what you're about. You know, first of all, first of all, I appreciate you coming on. Number one, I appreciate you, man. So, uh, uh, yeah, but let let the the audience know, like you know, what you're about and your history and whatnot. No worries, man. Um, I'm originally from Washington D.C. Uh, I went to high school in Prince George's County. My high school, we had three blacks on staff, and by chance, one was a chemistry teacher, one was a religion teacher, other was a guidance counselor, and his name was Rob Mayo. Mm-hmm. And he, in my senior year, he said, go visit FAMU. It said HBCU like Howard. Now, mind you, my high school, I, I went through the hoop, but I got hurt, so it didn't work out for me. And so um, in high school, they said, go visit FAM. And I never heard of it before. My mom went to a PWI, so I wasn't familiar with the HBCU concept. My father didn't go to college. And so I went into fam and fell in love. I fell in love with the culture, the people. Uh, in between the world of me, he speaks about how Howard spoke to him. Fam, he spoke to me that same way. Yeah. And while, while fam, I got involved in student government, made lifelong friends, joined the frat. And uh, after fam, I went to work for the Speaker of the House. And then I went to work for Jeb Bush. And then I went to law school UF. Uh, after law school, I came back home, uh, passed the bar exam, worked in corporate for a minute, and started my own practice in 2013. And uh, for the last decade, I've been doing a lawyer thing. And then about three years ago, I started a platform called Biavo, which helps co-parent uh, resolve the issues outside the litigation process. And so uh, that's where I'm at now. I'm married. Uh, we discussed earlier, my wife's a first-generation American. Um, she's from Jamaica. We have four children and uh, we live in Baltimore, Baltimore, Maryland now. And actually this summer we're moving to Costa Rica. So that's oh, our plan. That's dope. We're, yeah. So that's the plan, bro. What part of uh, Costa Rica? A place called, uh, Guanacaste, um, right outside of the capital. Um, so 
we've been planning this for a couple of years. We kept having children. And then last year, we were ready to go, and then COVID happened. And now it's prime time. We've both been vaccinated. Uh, irrespective of how you, we feel about that, we, we took the vaccination, and uh, we're ready to go. So I, I, okay, if you mind me asking, like, why Costa Rica? <laughs> why Costa Rica? That's a great question. I mean, initially, we thought about Tanzania mm-hmm. or somewhere like uh, uh, South Africa or uh, in Ghana. But our, our both of our fathers are deceased, and um, my wife and I, and our mothers are approaching 70. And, you know, that's a far way away for our parents uh, to travel. And so my wife and I, on our honeymoon, initially we said uh, we wanted our children to be at least bilingual because when we were traveling, we met so many couples who spoke two, three, four languages. Yeah. We're like, as Americans, how do we position ourselves to our children to be able to speak multiple languages? Yeah. And so since since uh, their birth, we've tried to engage them with caretakers who are bilingual, uh, immersion programs, and now... We're taking a deep dive into Costa Rica. So we're taking a financial sacrifice. We have some real estate investments that's going to hold us over while we're over there. But we're taking the sacrifice. We have some virtual platforms. My wife's a nurse practitioner. Um, and my platform, Biavo, is virtual for folks. Um, so to answer your question, it's, uh, it's in Central America. It's close enough to the U.S. for a flight. Um, it's a pretty, pretty safe place. And the schools the schools are there are on par with some of the U.S. standards, uh, international standards, rather. And there's a, a huge component of language and safety and also just the getting out of the the sports culture in the U.S., the political culture in the U.S., the race culture in the U.S. Um, and mind you, we're not going to a utopian society, but right. it will be an opportunity for the children to, you know, be free and not be so caught up in the Nintendo Switch or caught up in the iPad, but to really enjoy nature and explore. Yeah, that's dope, man. That's I appreciate that. Yeah, that's actually uh, that's admirable. Uh, I'm actually on that tip as well, uh, but mm-hmm. you know, I didn't. I'm not planning on moving to Costa Rica anytime soon. But <laughs> I do, but I do plan on you know, leaving the U.S. at some point. So, um, you know, applause to you for a number of things. Number one, for uh, taking your family outside the country. Yeah, you know, so that uh, applause for you for. You know, being frat. Yeah. And applause for you being a first time guest, man, on this show. So um yeah. so with that, man, I actually wanna you know, I know you, you we want to get away from the racial conversation from your family, but I, what I wanted to do is talk about just the concepts that were uh, been permeating through a lot of the conservative talking points of race and and um you know critical race theory. And one of the things I want to start out with is uh Tim Scott's uh, statement. So let me go ahead and play a sound drop and then we can right, okay. up with that. All right. It seems like a good man. His speech was full of good words, but President Biden promised you a specific kind of leadership. He promised to unite a nation. Our nation is starving for more than empty platitudes. We need policies and progress that brings us closer together. But three months in, the actions of the president and his party are pulling us further and further apart. Today, kids are being taught that the color of their skin defines them again. They're an oppressor. 
From colleges to corporations to our culture, people are making money and gaining power by pretending we haven't made any progress at all, by doubling down on the divisions we've worked so hard to heal. You know this stuff is wrong. Hear me clearly. America is not a racist country. It's backwards to fight discrimination with different types of discrimination, and it's wrong to try to use our painful past to dishonestly shut down debates in the present. Nowhere do we need common ground more desperately than in our discussions of race. I have experienced the pain of discrimination. I know what it feels like to be pulled over for no reason, to be followed experience a different kind of intolerance. I get called Uncle Tom and the N-word by progressives, by liberals. We are not adversaries. We are. So I, there was a, t- a couple different clips because it was a long. Um, yeah, yeah. It was, it, you know, he did a long post uh, um, uh, speech. And, you know, that was a, I guess, uh, the Republican rebuttal. Mm-hmm. And so I had to splice up a couple different sides. So I apologize for the sound chopping up, but you know that was all different parts of his speech there. And right. um, what were your thoughts on that? Um, it was a lot. Yeah, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah. A lot to process a lot to break down. Um, it's kept what he was saying was more talking points to nuance. And it seemed as if I realized he had a short window. Uh, we have short attention spans, but unfortunately he missed the target yeah. um, from what he was trying to achieve, which I believe is um, the idea to, for the Republican party to have a bigger tent of bringing folks in. And you can't acknowledge strike that you can't have a true trans, a transparent conversation without acknowledging real issues. Because in that point, it's a false, it's a false reality and a false sense of trust in the conversation. Yeah. And so, his initial point of saying people are being judged by the color of their, of their skin and being made to feel like bullies, in essence, uh, I'm assuming he's referring to white, white males and white women. I'm assuming that's what he's referring to the dominant culture in the U.S. And it's kind of like, well, it's not an indictment on all folks to say America is a racist country. But we have racist tendencies, right? And we have racist practices in the U.S. Right. And so, I was just surprised that um, that the that he went that direction as opposed to really having a, a true conversation. Uh, you can't say he's been called the N-word, and it sounded like he was saying in the present tense, like, like it didn't happen five years ago. Right. It happened re- most recently. It's, it's, it was something that he can refer to. Exactly. Know? And so, whether you're liberal or, or conservative, it's a real issue. Right. Um, I don't I don't categorize people who have racist behavior by their a party affiliation. Right. 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 It's, I mean, it happens on both sides of the equation. And then you juxtapose the the animosity and angst towards Senator Scott to Vice President Harris, who made a very similar comment the next day. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can't put it in a vacuum. It, I think it's intellectually dishonest. It is unfair to those as a political student to say that her comments is a pass because she's a Democrat um, and and she's a vice president of the United States. She's going to scrutiny as well. 
and I and, and I want to get into, I'm going to get into Harris. Okay, I'm okay, gonna, okay. Because that's that's an interesting fire bag in itself, right? Um, so, um, just staying on Scott. Gotcha. What bothered me, and to your point, where is that the um, inauthenticity of his statements, right? right? Because on one side of his mouth, he's saying America is not racist, but then he's saying. You know, he goes on to say, I, I've been pulled over because of the color of my skin and I've been called the N word and, you know, and, you know, all these other things. It's like, what is it? You know, and it's like you've, you've missed, you missed the opportunity to your point to have a real conversation. And because honestly, let's just first, let's just call it what it is. People who watch the, um, who, who, who watch that, that, <laughs> not town hall, uh, What's you call it? The uh, uh, State of Union address. Yeah, State of Union. Who watched the, the State of Union and watched the post, the rebuttal? They're like political nerds. They're not. No, most people are not sitting there and watching that, right? But he had. I'll, a- raise, my on that one. I'll raise my hand on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I agree with you. I mean, we are that section of the population is a very small slice, right? You know, and so you know, although. Yeah, it gets a large number of ratings, but you're not it's not 300 million people watching that thing. So right. and then and in the post statement, it's even probably half of that because most people are not sticking around to watch the post. Right. right. So when I say that you're speaking to the you're preaching to the choir. Right. And you've worked with candidates before. Right. I always said, you know, I'll, I'll tell a candidate like when you're giving a speech, you're literally speaking to the choir at this point. And so yeah. don't be afraid to preach the gospel to the choir. Because right. at that point, you know, you're you're if you're moving away from it, you're going to deem yourself, you know, inauthentic. And yeah. I felt like he missed the boat because he could have really had a real conversation with people who are can take his talking points and then spread them to the Gentiles, if you move, you know. And I right. just I didn't really, I I just you know I was kind of I really was bothered on so many aspects of it. I didn't I didn't like it. And um, but it speaks to what he what he does. Tim Scott sometimes he tries to play, you know, the tries to play the, the both sides type of thing too much instead of just being strong. You know, that's a tough part about <clears throat> being an elected official. Um, they're running for the next election every day. Um, I realize he has a longer a longer marathon being in the U.S. Senate, but it's just like my guy, you just voted for the Asian hate crime bill last week, mm-hmm. and if what you're saying is true, then you, it should have been a no vote last week. Right. Right. I mean, so you can't have an Asian hate crime bill uh, that was needed and appropriate. And then the following week, say there's no race in America, not a racist country. So, I mean, and I don't know that. Let me say this. I don't know the impact of saying America is a racist country. I don't know the impact of saying either way in the real terms. Like, what does it really mean in your thoughts? Like, like from your perspective, like to acknowledge America being racist, like, Right. I don't understand the calculation there. Like, right. what did he lose? And, but the inverse of that is, it's almost the same as if, like, he has so much, he lost so much leverage and transparency. I mean, just call it what it is. And, and more importantly, what's the solution? So, become so yeah, go, I, I, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to kill you, kill you, Momenta, bro. No, no, no. I'm saying, like, I was asking a rhetorical question, but I, I really want to hear your perspective, though. I mean, like, I don't, I don't know the impact of him saying it's a racist country and then. What is that? How does that impact him politically? I mean, he didn't present a solution. He he robbed himself of the opportunity to actually present a positive idea, solve problems. You know, right? So you know, he brought forth a conversation that he had no, he didn't know how to answer, 
And exactly. a conversation that up until that point, people weren't having that conversation. Is America a racist country? You know, right. but he decided it's like, you know, you're, it's like you're in trial and you bring up a subject and you don't know, really know how to answer the subject. And the jury's right. going to look at you like, well, why did, why the hell did you even bring that up? If you don't even know how to address the, the topic, then you, you, that was dumb. You know, you just kind of lost credibility in your own trial. And so, right. you know, he brought up is America a racist country. That was probably the centerpiece of his speech. And, right. and if I was a speechwriter, I've been like, if you don't know how to answer that question, don't don't bring up the question, and right. or if you're not going to address the question, don't bring up the question um, in a genuine way. Um, I think the best statement he could have made, and this goes now we can go into like uh, uh, Vice President Harris, is instead of asking, "Is America a racist country?" Ask the question: Does America have racist? Ideals and white supremacy within our construct, mm-hmm. and then then you can have that because what is what is America, right? Is America a racist country? Then, like, what is that? That's a very such an amorphous thing. Like, mm-hmm. what is America? Are you talking about the rules? Are you talking about our lifestyle? Are you talking right. about a specific people? Like, what does that mean? You know, right. and it's like it's it's this you know cumbersome statement that means nothing. Like America. Like what? What is that? What are you talking about? American history, right? You know, like so when you say America is not racist, you're not addressing like any any uh, specificity of what you're actually talking about because our history definitely is racist. Our social right. constructs are definitely rooted in um, white supremacy and racism. You know, our understanding of people and society is rooted in racist racial constructs. You know, and so. What are you even talking about? And, you know, going to like um, uh, Senator Harris. Well, I'll, 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 I'll talk about her in a second. But what do you think about just what I just said? I mean, that that's the point. I think it's it's a uh, it's a clarion call for people who are actually listening to have a true conversation. Right. Like in, in South Africa, they had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mm-hmm. And I didn't fully understand it until I went to South Africa. Mm-hmm. And I went to... Uh, President Mandela's went to a, a sale, and I, I mean, I, I shudder at the thought of just like living in that environment. And I mean, we have first world issues here. I mean, that was that was just draconian in nature though how he lived and how he was oppressed. And for him to come out and say, you know what? How do we solve this problem by having an honest conversation? And I think on both sides, Democrats and Republicans have been hesitant to have true conversation. Um, I wonder how far we could be as a society if we actually had a a true dialogue about racism in America. Yeah, yeah I went to his home. I mean, first I went to the, I saw his prison cell. And then um, later on in the trip, I went to his actual community where he actually uh, lived with his wife, uh, Mrs. Mandela. And just seeing all that and all the journey he went through and then seeing the actual rules in place um, about uh, white, uh, colored, and black. It was just like, it blew my mind to see that. But they still had true and honest conversations. And they're not where they need to be or where they should be or where desired to be, but the conversation was at least started and had dialogue. And in America, if we have the opportunity to have a true conversation about race and a true conversation about what that means and how it has impacted people's journey in this country, that's a great starting point. And 
me saying that there's America has racist tendencies or it's a racist country is not an indictment on all white people. It's not an indictment on all black people or Latin or Asian people. It's just a it's a true candid statement. And this is a we are a mixing bowl of culture, of religion, of of race, of gender, of sexuality. And so to be honest, is the only way that you can move forward to have true conversation. So to answer your question, I mean, um, to your point, I don't understand why he missed the target. He lost the jury to your reference point for trial. Um, he, if I was a voter for him, he lost me if I'm on the fence. And he doesn't get any momentum for a 2024 vice presidential uh, nominee, which I think may be an offset if that happens to say, you know what, he may be the first person of color or someone person of color in 2024 to run on a a Republican ticket. And so um, if that was the posture they were trying to put him in, he missed the window. Well, go ahead. Yeah, Most people who who do the post, but Republican or Democrat, I always say that's probably where political careers go to die. <laughs> yeah. Most yeah. people who do that, they don't come out of that yeah. in it with the best of, you know, uh, remarks. It's weird. I don't know who keeps signing up for these things. I wouldn't, yeah. if I was in that, if I would approach that, like, I was like, I'll be saying hell no. You're, you're yeah. never going to let me do that. But you got to think, even back to Bobby Jindal, right? Yeah. I mean, like, when he got it, he was the hot topic. Marco Rubio was the hot topic. And mind you, when I worked in the House of Representatives, I saw Senator Rubio debate on the House of Representatives floor. He was phenomenal. And he was the first person of color, whether that's his orientation or not, from perspective-wise, to be the speaker of the Florida House of Representatives. You walk in that room of the House of Florida Representatives, it's all white men. Mm-hmm. He's the first person. Um, he's of Cuban descent. Yeah. He's speaking of the house. I mean, so he has some charisma and poise. But to your point, people are built up with this for this platform, and they miss the boat every time, which is unfortunate on the Republican and Democrat side. Yeah, um, I think Senator Warren probably did one of the best jobs in recent memory when she did a rebuttal. But even th- that was still questionable. Right. And so it, it's just tough, man, to see people have all this momentum and then go in there and lose it all. Yeah. <laughs> um. So we talked about um, Tim Scott being a Vice presidential nominee, possibly. Right. Uh, let's talk about our current vice president, Kamala. Right. And her statements the next day uh, when she was on ABC News with George Stephanopoulos and right. he asked her the question, you know, was she, uh, did she think America was um, a racist society? And, you know, and then she said no. And then she went into, well, you know, and then she went into uh, Biden's, uh, Acknowledgement of white supremacy in, in law enforcement and how they're trying to stamp it out. And again, as somebody who is both with um, who is black and Indian or Asian, let's say Asian um, right. descent, descent, I felt like she missed the mark as well. But I, at the same time, she's in a weird place, right? Because she's has to balance two things. Number one. She has to balance uh, Biden's ego because most people don't. Biden has such he has such a large ego that she can't. You you hear rumors that she can't um, outshine him because so she's doing everything she can to right. um, push him up and say it's his White House, his his initiative, and we're we're going with the Biden agenda. And at the same time, she has to have a, clearly an outlook for her own political future, right? And not to be this bright rising star that's gonna that's gonna outshine. Biden. So she makes comments that stay in a pocket, you know, um, right. and that's not giving her a out. That's just 
what I see is like I, there's clearly a constraint there that I was like, man, you missed a mark there. You could have you could have had a moment and still done did what you had to do. And I hear you on that. And if all that's true, that's unfortunate and very saddening to, to see that um, she has to downplay so other people could be larger um, or at least feel larger because she is she's a bright star, whether she's vice president, president or senator. Um, but to that point, um, it it was it was regrettably disappointing to hear her comments, even though she gave context behind her statement. When you put it on paper objectively to assess it, right? Her, her and Senator Scott have the same assessment of our country, right? And that's not a true statement. Um, that's not what she campaigned on. That's not what right. she addressed on other podcasts, other platforms, and um, it's misleading. And I think that the Democratic Party, mind you, I have my personal opinions about former President Trump, right? Mm -hmm. But one thing that his his followers rallied around him was on the, the fact that he appeared to be authentic. Whether he was or not is debatable. I agree with that. I agree he with stuck, that. He stuck on a message. Right. And the Democratic Party, they oftentimes find themselves becoming wayward of, we want to be when we blue dog Democrats, we want to be moderate, we want to be conservative, we want to be liberal Democrats. No. What is your agenda you're trying to achieve in advance? Right. Stay true to that. That's how you want dance with the guy or girl you came with. Right. And I feel like Senator Harris, she came to the dance and she she said, you know what? I'm going to jettison my, my views and my beliefs in order to sustain some type of status quo. And ultimately, that may cost her a nomination in the future right. or the bid in the future. I mean, so... I don't know what her thinking was behind that. I just think that it was it, it, it was disingenuous on her part to make those statements in comparison to Senator Scott, and she should be on the same level of scrutiny. Yeah, yeah. I, I um I would have loved to have seen her own the moment, right? You know, and it's the same thing with like Obama. I, I felt like Obama missed a lot of marks when it came to race. Um, right. I I felt like he he felt like he had to walk a tightrope um, when it came to race instead of just being. Honest, and then when he was, he did make statements, you know, of Trayvon uh, could have been my son, and then he got, you know, uh, killed for it. Right. I felt like that in itself should have been like, all right, well, listen, they're not going to let me be authentic, so let me. They're not going. They don't like when I try to be honest, so maybe that's maybe more tr truth is needed, as opposed to. Walking away from the statement because I don't want to offend people. I want to appease people who are going to hate me for what what um, I say or what I look like. I mean, for God's sakes, his wife—they made caricatures of her of being a monkey. Exactly. You know, and so it was like if you're not going to be ever honest about the characterization of what race and means in society, then who who else can make that conversation, make that argument? Um, <laughs> Go ahead. And to your point, I mean, the, the truth hurts, man. I mean, yeah. whether it's marriage or whether it's in business, whether it's in your law partner, uh, whether it's with your children. Uh, my children have said some very hurtful things to me, not intentionally, but just saying, hey, daddy, you missed the mark here. Yeah. Right. So but we can't have an honest conversation about whether we my children are in business about how we solve the problem unless we're honest about it. Mm -hmm. And from your perspective, I think you're 100 percent right. I mean, Stick to your guns. I mean, no matter what, no matter how they attack Trump, he stuck to his message, and that was successful. In my mind, you, I think some of his messages were, were, were abhorrent and offensive, but.
But in the day, he stayed true to his message. And I just wish that uh, Senator Harris would have that, that level of tenacity and, and, and follow through with her message. She, if she believes it, right? right? I don't know in her heart. I've never, met, I've never met her before. I've never worked with her before. But basically, she let me believe she was in the campaign um, and in her platform. That was a total opposite of what she campaigned on. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't I don't know where this leads to, but hopefully she comes back to a perspective of of being genuine and authentic. So um, I, I'm and it's my fault, y'all. I, I didn't even play the Senator Harris clip, so some may not even be aware of what she said. So I'm gonna go ahead and cue that up. Go ahead. Senator Tim Scott said last night that America is not a racist country. Do you agree with that? And what do you make of his warning against fighting discrimination with more discrimination? I believe that we need to address, well, first of all, no, I don't think America is a racist country, but we also do have to speak truth about the history of racism in our country and its, and its existence today. And I, I applaud the president for always having the ability and the courage, frankly, to speak the truth about it. He spoke what we know from the intelligence community. One of the greatest threats to our national security is domestic terrorism manifested by white supremacists. And so these are issues that we must confront. And it doesn't, it does not help to heal our country, to unify us as a people, to ignore the realities of that. And I think the president has been outstanding and a real national leader. We know on the issue of saying, let's confront the realities and let's deal with it, knowing we all have so much more in common than what separates us. And the idea is that we want to unify the country, but not without um, speaking truth and, and requiring accountability as appropriate. So, again, that was, to me, talking out of two sides of her mouth, right? Right. right. No, and it, again, it leads to not being genuine. Just, you know, either to say, yes, America, we have... Um, we have a society that's based on racism that we have to address. And the, long, the more we don't talk about it, the more it festers and it becomes more uncomfortable. And that would have been a proper conversation, a proper starting point to again, leaning into and say, and we've started this by going attacking white supremacy within law enforcement. Right. That would have been the conversation, you know, but right. when you equivocate, well, no, America's not a racist country, but I want to, I want to say this though, but we are attacking white supremacy within law enforcement. What is that even? What are you talking about? Right. right. I mean, that, that's that's the law school one on one. Were you lying? Then are you lying, lying now to a witness on the stand? Right. It's, it's to your point. It's just like how do you? And it robs the public from having a conversation. These are our leaders. Right. I mean, these are the people who we look up to uh, to give us guidance, and they have momentum. They have the bully pulpit to push policy. Um, to they have executive orders. Um, they have majority in the Senate right now based on Senator Harris's vote um, and in the House. They have the opportunity there. So show me so th- th- to your point. It's been a perfect opportunity to say, no, what America's race is a country. And here's what we're doing. And so we're advancing this bill right here now. And we're advancing this opportunity here. This is our, our next move through, the, through this agency. I mean, but that didn't happen because she pivoted from her position, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that, you know, our leaders, um, I have a hard time talking about race uh, because for whatever reason, do you think it makes them less electable or more electable? It depends on, I guess, the community you're coming from, yeah. right? I mean, I have, when all this stuff happened with George Floyd, um, and mind you, University of Florida, uh, when I was there, it wasn't a bastion for diversity, right? Mm-hmm. We had 
in my section, it was me and another black gentleman. And I remember vividly in class one day, um, the professor called me the other black guy's name. And I said, no, professor, uh, that's the other black guy. And he was, he, he looked kind of aghast. And I was like, you know, Hey, um, it wasn't, it wasn't disrespectful, but that's, uh, that's how com- easily confused he was by me and somebody else right in the classroom. Mm. And so coming from that construct on race in politics and being elected, it's a tough conversation because I feel like you have a large portion of the electorate who may feel as if you are putting them on the island and, and charging them with charge of being racist by, by acknowledging race. Right. Right. And which is, I understand that better because of conversations I've had my peer groups, but on the flip side, you have individuals of minorities who've been marginalized and say, you know what, if you don't acknowledge this to, to the standard I feel is appropriate, then you're not genuine. I'm not voting for you. And so you have politicians trying to appease both groups. Like how do I make it to my majority on the voting box? If on one hand, I might appeal to the majority population, which is now dwindling down, coming to be a true majority by 2030. And then, but you also have a strong portion of the, of the minority groups, black and brown folks who are saying, I need you to acknowledge my issues in this country, whether it be police brutality, whether it be wage equity, whether it be dealing with schooling or whether it be dealing with housing or public infrastructure in my community on the black and brown side of town. And so for someone to get elected, that's a very fine line. But to your point earlier, I come back to truth. What is your truth? Yeah. And what is your platform? And how do you address those issues on race and say, you know, you can say, you know what? We have racist issues. You're not a racist per se, uh, or you're not racist at all. However, we still have to deal with reality. I mean, of have to deal with it. So we need these policies to ensure that this these out, outgrowths of Jim Crow, of uh, you know, of redlining are dissipated and are removed from our society. And until that happens, we can't have an honest conversation, right? Because the, the ripple effect goes on across the board, whether it be the soft bigotry and low expectations on the liberal side or policies dealing with voting disenfranchisement on the conservative side. And so I think it's a tough conversation for someone to have to, have, to be honest about it. But again, I think being genuine, having enthusiasm, and having real solutions is always the answer in politics. Mm-hmm. Whether you're talking about building a bridge or changing the school system, if you're genuine, you're true to your message, you have enthusiasm behind it, and your solutions actually are proposed, are practical, and they have results, I think that trumps race across the board. Mm-hmm. But again, if, you, if you're pivoting every, every which way because of the way the wind, the wind is blowing, you're going to have a hard go at it. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you were... Um... You were a Republican? I was, yeah. 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 <laughs> and so um, I was a Republican from 2003 up until uh, about 2015, 2014. Yeah. Um, I was a Republican, yeah. I was, oddly enough, um, I was by president at FAMU. It took me a whole year, it took me a, a whole year to make this decision. And mind you, um, when I became a Republican, uh, people really, really, really took exception to that. Yeah. Right. I mean, mind you, we had just marched on Jeb Bush for one Florida initiative about ranking uh, schools in Florida and tier, the tier system. Uh, when I was actually president the year before, uh, when Andrew Gillum was president, 
And um, it was some knockdown dragons about that, man. Like people thought I was denying my race and my culture and my perspective. But I go to this. When uh, when Governor Bush was running for re-election in 2002, he reached out to me personally and called me and said, hey, I realize you're SJ president fam. Uh, I want to come to your campus and speak my agenda and my perspective to your student, my student body. Mind you, now this is the governor of Florida, sitting governor. We just marched him the year before. Yeah. But he had the, he, he was extending the olive branch. Now, mind you, FAMU's campus is very politically involved. I mean, so, but we weren't going to vote for him, right? As a, as a whole, right? Right, right, right. He, he still wanted to extend the conversation. On the flip side, um, God bless the dead, uh, Bill McBride was running for, he was a nominee on the Democrat side. I called his campaign nonstop to get him to come to campus, mm-hmm. but he chose to go to UF. He went to uh, USF mm-hmm. and UCF. He wouldn't visit FAMU. I got a phone call from like a, like a, a deputy of a deputy saying that he apologized when I come to our campus. And so for me, I was just like, yeah. um, I'm not sure who made the decision. Maybe never even reached his desk, but it just showed me that th- there is, and my, mind you, that wasn't the whole, the whole reason why I made my decision, but that's when the, the idea first started percolating populating in my head of like, you know what, is there an alternative here? Or all Repu- Mind you, I thought all Republicans were bad people. That's, that, that's how I was raised. That's how I was exposed to. Like, you're 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 black or brown, you're a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And so that opened the conversation up to say, you know what, what is this party about? Are they really trying to, are they really racist or are they trying to reach out to my community? Or, I mean, is there, is there an opportunity for true conversation? Now, mind you, it wasn't, again, it wasn't like, all flowers and roses in right. and on that side. I had some some serious is- issues in, with the Republican Party then and now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, you know what? I'll open conversation and the idea about being fiscally conservative, um, you know, economic and empowerment for black folks. Also, I mean, I saw under Jeb Bush as well, minority contracting with the state yeah. triple on his leadership, right? And that's true economic empowerment. Like, don't don't put a black person ahead of um, minority outreach, like put someone in opportunities, to give black, black and brown businesses and, and women owned businesses the opportunity to do business with the state, right. the, the business incubator. So right. I, I happened on the Republican Party side. And I said, you know what? That intrigues me on some of the social issues. Uh, you know, I wasn't there with as far as abortion and dealing with issues of, uh, you know, some of the prison reform, I wasn't there. Um, I wasn't there on that on that part of the party. But as far as what I believe is a true change or opportunity in this country for equity, economic empowerment, I saw I saw the opportunity in the Republican Party side, and I, I think there was some advancement there. But then you fast forward to twenty fourteen, and you see uh, nominee Trump then to become President Trump. I just couldn't align with that at all in any shape or form or fashion. So um, I left the party, become independent um, after. The Republican Party of Maryland had a dinner and President Trump was the keynote speaker. And I saw how he moved the room and I read the tea leaves. I said, this guy's going to win. Yeah. If he can, if he carried Maryland, if he carried Maryland Republicans that way, he's going to kill in the Midwest. He's going to kill in Florida. Yeah. And, you know what? Let me get out of the party before he was a nomination because I was just, uh, I didn't want to align with those values. And I saw, unfortunately, him being true and genuine to his ideals. Yeah. How that permeated throughout the culture and through the country and the party. So that's your question. Yeah. I mean, um, and I'm not sure if I, if I ever, ever go back to being a Republican, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for a period of time, that was, that was my identity. That's what I stood with. So my father's a Republican. I, I spoke okay. to you about that offline. 
Um, I grew up in a conservative household, so I mm-hmm. actually have perspective on that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, black conservative, black conservatism, and right. I always say I don't, I don't look at black conservatives with a paintbrush. Like, oh well, you know they they don't care about their own race. My my parents grew up. I mean, grew grew me up. I that's not even correct verbiage, but I I was raised rather as super super pro pro black. Right. Like I mean, I remember to the point where I had Marcus Garvey painting oil paintings on my wall. You know, wow. my parents had that. You know, like that's kind of the like that type of pro black. Like people used to walk in my house, like they used to see African figures and like, are you related to this person? Like, because you have paintings of people in your house. And I'm like, no, 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 they're not related. This is, these are just certain, these are just, you know, um, African people have uh, uh, just, I mean, it was just an interesting dynamic. But um, so I say all that to say, I don't, I never really look at things through the periscope of just you know, one ideology. Right? right. And I will also say that, you know, having grown up with that idea, I can understand the concept of black empowerment and black right. economic empowerment. Exactly. And, and the, the appeal of that. Right. You know, uh, and I just want to say for the record, my, although my father is uh, still a registered Republican today, he has voted a Democrat the last three elections. So I, I joke with him, like you might as well just come over to be becoming a Democrat, but you know, he's never going to do that. But any, at any rate, um, and, and to your point, Brother Kamara, from that perspective, it's like when you're a black Republican, right? Yeah. You got to say I voted for Obama. It's like a white guy saying I have black friends, right? Right. It's like, it's like a validation almost. It's a weird validation, right? Blackness, right? It is, I think. And, you know, um, and we, we say those type of things. And I even said that before the friends about being a Republican, unprompted to let them know I'm still cool. And my thing is this, I mean, like, um, I that was when I was a little bit younger in, in 08. Um, and I'm just like, that's not, again, being true and being genuine. Right. I, I know what I stand for and, and what I am. I mean, I live in Baltimore City. Right. And it's just like my party affiliation isn't at the top of my list as far as my identifiers. Yeah. Like yeah, my, me, me being a husband, me being a father, me being a business owner, me being engaged in my community, that's all more important than my party affiliation. My party affiliation is more about the way out my worldview being represented in a representative democracy, right? Yeah. And I align with those individuals who I think represent that well. I voted for Democrats, I voted for Republicans. And I'm just like, um, and then more importantly, if, it's, if we have no representation in another room, how, how, is our agenda being, how is our agenda being advanced? When I say, oh, I'm speaking about people of color, yeah. I'm speaking about people who are, I have family members who are, are gay or bisexual or transgender. Um, and how is that, if I'm not present to articulate those things, I, I remember clearly been once being in a room um, at a GOP fundraiser and certain things were being said. And I had to, I had to address a state representative in a, in a very, uh, in a very professional, but also a very direct way about, Hey, that's not appropriate. Yeah. Like, I mean, so it's just like, how do you have representation in all the rooms if you're not there? I Cause agree. these, and, and so I didn't do it just for that purpose. I align with the beliefs of certain parts of the party, but to that point, like we, we're so diverse in our music yeah. and our culture and our, 
our, our food and our, and our nationalities. So why is it that we all align politically on this one, same thing? That doesn't seem to be true. Um, so it can't be true, I don't think. And I think it's more of tradition and convenience than it is about true being objective. Now, mind you, I'm not some, I'm not Prometheus bringing lights from the, from the gods and the, or fire from the gods. I'm just saying, like, for me, I'm saying to be true to myself, am I a Democrat because I want to be a Democrat or because that's what I align with? And so I hear, I hear you wholeheartedly. You know, it's it's wild because uh, I, I love that you said, you know, you had, you had to almost give this, I, I voted for Obama. To let you mm-hmm. know, but it's like it's like that <laughs> that insecurity to let people know, you know, like you said, I'm still cool. But like, why yeah. do we why do we have to do that? Why why do we have to to make that statement? And um, unfortunately, it's because uh, the the Democratic Party on you know, or let's just say the Republican Party hasn't done as an effective job in you know curtailing white supremacy. Now this white supremacy on both sides, because I've mm-hmm. seen it, you know, and I and I'm actually I'm gonna I'm gonna gonna talk about that. But what I think what has happened is that, you know, the Republican Party has done such a failure of really trying to have an honest conversation about race that they missed the ball. And I always say that if Republicans really wanted to have an, a real conversation about race, they can get large swaths of black people if they mm-hmm. ever wanted to have, but they don't want to do that because they're afraid. Of losing a certain swath of the party, and right. I'm like, you guys have you guys lack such vision in right. the way you approach black black people that you'll never get you'll never have the the, the opportunity to really um, uh, g- gain favor, you know. And that goes to the point of the Tim Scott statement, like he missed he missed the ball because you could have really moved the ball up the field, but you didn't, right? You know, and I'm not saying he would have scored. You know, large points, but even got incremental enough to where people might might have given him another look. Like, you know what, that party's changing. You know, yeah, and right. um, and I think that's kind of where. And, and again, I'm not capping for the Republican Party, okay? But I'm just I'm just being honest about what I see. Uh, Democratic Party, man, it's weird to have you said you said you've had that statement with you couldn't even get them on the phone because I've had many times with. You know, Democrats who are in office, and I can't even get them on the phone about certain things. But if you call a Republican, and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What you want? You know, they're more apt to listen. I'm like, it's that shit is wild to me, and it's yeah. it's crazy because I'm holding up the banner for this party, <laughs> and then it's like at the same time, y'all don't even y'all don't come like it's real. Like Trump made a statement in his first run. He said, uh, every four years they come around, and it, yeah. and it's like, and then it's weird in a weird way. I was like, he's not actually lying. Like he's like, it's there's the the danger in Trump is that it was truth wrapped in a lot of bullshit, you know, and he did, and that's what makes him, that's what you know makes him a sociopath because sociopaths do that they wrap truth in bullshit, and you know, and and they uh, um or actually an ideologue, you know, yeah, and uh, so I found that to be so often happen like, you know, Democrats. They're not genuine in how they approach black issues. I think they're they're you hear statements that they're trying to do better. Right. You know, they're acknowledging that they finally acknowledge, at least in this last election, that Democrat black people are the base of their party. They can't they can't even deny that shit anymore. Like not at all. You know, they have to get, they have to lean into it. Like they're they're the base of our party. It, you know, we're not we cannot afford 
to discount them any any further. No, I, I agree with you um, in part on, on, from perspective that, you know, the Republican Party has missed out on a lot of opportunities to really, again, enlarge their tent. I mean, if you go into an apostolic church or a Pentecostal church or a Baptist church and you hear some of the sermons about uh, sexuality, you hear sermons about abortion or you hear sermons about, you know, conservative values. I mean, they're on par with a lot of the things in the Republican Party, right? Mm-hmm. Whether we're better or indifferent. But when you, to your point about Senator Scott making that comment, that negates it. It trumps it, yeah. um, for lack of a better term. And on the flip side, you have the Democratic Party. <clears throat> that's, from my perspective, not all, but some in the soft bigotry of low expectations. Like the Hillary Clinton's down because she puts hot sauce in her bag. Right. I don't give a about her hot sauce. It makes no difference to me. Right. Let's talk about economics, though. Economic empowerment. Right. And we put, we, I would say we, again, as a community, uh, marginalized people have put our hopes into a party for fulfillment and for, and for to be elevated out of a condition when there's no true party that can do that for you. Yeah. It's about economic empowerment. It's about community responsibility. It's about dreaming big for our individuals. Obama, President Obama, excuse me, good, bad, or indifferent, the biggest thing he did was envision hope for people who, th- who felt hopeless. Right. I live in Baltimore City again, and um, I invest in some of the, so, so I, we, my wife and I invest in some, some of the rougher areas. And the conversation you have with some folks in the communities, like, they can't even imagine, you know, imagine having a society where they're not being uh, oppressed economically because of overburden some tax policies by the city. I say taxes, I mean tickets and uh, water bills and excessive utility bills, right? They can't imagine a world where their children can thrive and be in AP classes or travel the world or speak multiple languages or, you know, have exposure and go to medical school and, and, and go to enge- and be an engineer or be a standout social worker. Their biggest thing is getting from day to day, right? Right. And it's a city under Democrat, Democratic leadership since as far back as it as it's been as been can be remembered. Right. And so the party's not gonna save individuals from that. And so for me, I struggle with the idea of how do we have an agenda that is inclusive but not relying upon a political candidate, right? Mm-hmm. And so and what what candidate is going to advance that agenda for our community? Because you passing a bill for a stimulus check, which was needed, indeed it was needed, but how does that change racism in America? Yeah. How does that change the, the disparate differences in economic funding for our schools? Right. I give a young black girl, a young brown, a brown girl hope that she can get paid equity. Right. And so, or even business loans. How do we, yeah. how, how do we yeah. make it? How do we put um, stop gaps in place from loan officers, you know, yeah. using their own metrics to give out loans and they yeah. really base it not on not on credit worthiness, but on you know the color of your skin or your background, yeah. right? And, and without question, at that point, I, I believe affirmative action is not just about for blacks and brown, black and brown people, minority individuals to get opportunity. It also impacts if you're white or you're of a certain orient orient or a religious orientation or uh, sexual orientation, and you have a connection because of that. Because of that, 
and you get advanced because of that, that's affirmative action as well. Mm-hmm. For example, Jared Kushner, Jared Kushner, his father wrote a check for him to go to Harvard. Yeah. That was affirmative action, my man. Yeah. Like based on his relationship and his family and what his father would do for him, he got a certain benefit. Mm-hmm. He got advanced that way. I'm, whether you want to argue that or not, but the, the premise of the program is that, right? Because of your condition, you receive an opportunity. And white folks receive an opportunity to go to schools where they weren't otherwise qualified to be in. That's that's the baseline for it. So is you have to have a true conversation about that. So whether it be a bank loan, whether it be acceptance to Harvard, whether it be uh, you know, uh, one last point. So right, good. um I had a uh, we have a, a car we got serviced and I walked to the service dealership and there was a young kid. Now mind you, he didn't fit in. Like he didn't fit in. Um he just his talk was different. His confidence was different. You could tell he was there for a short term. Right. Uh, so we started having a conversation. I said, man, how'd you get here? I said, man, what's, what's your background? He said, yo, my dad is a, a lawyer. I was once in the NFL team. He represented uh, one of the NFL owners in a divorce. And by chance, um, the owner has part of this job group. And my dad said, go work on this guy's yacht for a year and service his yacht. And it, the, uh, he actually went working guys got while he was down there. He met another, another guy who owned like 20 car dealerships and the kid went from working with NFL owners yacht, work with his dealership guy and dealership guy put him in a training program where he's going to go from working to all aspects of the, of the dealership. And then in two years, he'll have his own dealership. Right. Right. It's a different, that's it. for some kids, that's some, for some kids in Baltimore city or Detroit or uh, LA or DC, to go from saying my dad or my mom is a lawyer because of that relationship, did such a good job. Now I'm going to work for NFL owner on a yacht where the NFL owner comes like tw- two months out of the year. The rest of the time you're just traveling in the yacht and you're working with other people. And then from there you work for another yacht group. And then from there you go work for a car dealership. And you're not working as an entry level employee. You're going in as a management training to have your own franchise one day. Right. That's a different. No Republican or Democrat can give that to you. Right. No. And so, Go ahead. You know what I tell people? I say access right, is more right. important. I, I I don't care about money. Mm-hmm. Cause money comes and goes, right? I I'd rather have access. Right. Um money's great. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love money. But one thing <laughs> is, the thing is, and I shouldn't say I love money, but you know what I mean. I, I you know, having money is good. Money keeps your lifestyle. But if the sustainability of money is based mm-hmm. on your ability to have access. Right. And I'm like, hey, yeah, you, you could write me a check and that's cool. But if the check's not large enough to sustain me for a long period of time, then I need to have access not only to information, access to, you know, the plug, access to you, access to whatever it is, the power structure, the, the financial network. That's what's going to let me to keep eating. Because... Right. And that's what we're all running. We're all running to. We're running to access to this financial spectrum, right? And what you just spoke to, to that that kid getting the avenue that's often we often don't get. Like, you, how how does a, a white kid with no experience become vice president of a com- company? Access, right? You know what I mean? How does a you know person become CEO? Access. Not because right. they're better, not because they learn they they have greater knowledge. It's access, and access, and also for them knowing that it's okay to fail. Mm-hmm. 
to fail. Like, and your life is over once you fail. Like, we, as a community, as a whole, we, 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 I, at least I can say for me, rather, I'm saying that's what we, I can speak for all community, I can say for myself. We didn't have, we had limited resources to your point about access. And so if you messed the resource up, it was over. It wasn't coming back or coming around again. Right. I remember vividly one time my mom bought pizza for us and I dropped my sights on the ground. And my mom was like, you know what? You got to eat that. Otherwise, you're going to be hungry. Not saying she's good or bad mom. She's a phenomenal mother for me. I love my mother, right? right. But I'm just like, we didn't have extra to go buy another slice of pizza. And my mom didn't feel comfortable enough to go into the pizza guy and say, hey, my son dropped his slice. Would you pick it up? Would you mind giving him a new slice of pizza, right? And I take that to comparison to I, I was out with a friend and I saw the freedom of he has a, at this time, the child was about seven years old. We were in a restaurant. Uh, white guy, close, very close friend of mine. And his son was just like loose. He had no fear. Yeah. He you know, like, sit your, sit your ass down before you get right. in trouble. Now, mind you, he wasn't being disrespectful. He wasn't being reckless, but yeah. he moved with a certain level of confidence. And as a parent, I said to myself, you know what? Now, mind you, my son at the time was, he was, a, he was infant, uh, was an infant. I was just like, you know what? How am I going to be as a dad with my son? Well, I give him the same level of freedom. I mean, and I give him the same opportunity to access and ability to fail. And mind you, there's certain things that I'm very rigid on, but I also give him a chance to say, you know what? Explore yourself. You want to, if you want to go to a restaurant and order whatever you want to order and have a good time and you, you want to be, express yourself, that's cool, right? And to your point, we just, we, we all, Honestly, I say me rather were so fearful of losing that access, or if I failed at something, I, it was, that was it. It's a different day now for this new generation. Hopefully, for our children and children for their children to say, you know what? One, my my mom and dad have access, and then two, it's okay for me to fail as long as I try my best. This isn't the end of the opportunity. Yeah, I you know it's wild, uh, and this is, I literally didn't plan on for the conversation to go this direction, but it's cool, um, right. and we'll we'll get back to. You know, on quote unquote track, but right. um, just staying in this vein, I um, I really do try to raise my children with the level of black joy, right? You know, and I don't want them to ever feel like, you know, I don't want them to feel anything as far as any like negative. Like I just want them to to operate with a sense of, you know, a freedom, right, and a belief that is, you know, incom- uncomparable. And something that they see from their white counterparts of the children right. of their age, and that's important for me because I think it seeps into how they view the world. Exactly. You know, and to your point about restaurants, you're right. Like, you know, we're so quick because we don't want to be deemed something else. We don't want to mm-hmm. be deemed. I always say I hate when people say, "Oh, you know, don't don't raise your kids to be." You know, you got to make sure they're not ghetto. And I was like, "Yo, first of all, that's white supremacy telling you what ghetto is, and what you know what I mean." Like, that's <laughs> I don't believe in that. Sh- I don't believe in that shit. You know, yeah. be, I say be, being black is beautiful and being black in your whole self is beautiful. And when you when we own that, you own that blackness and you're not afraid of it. You're not afraid of how it's going to be perceived because that's what it's not being afraid of perception. Facts. Then you can actually walk confidently in life. And so when I my kids, I want them to see me walk as a confident black individual, you know, right. and I say that to point where. It would happen several years ago on social media. As a lawyer, you know how it is. Like you got to watch it. You know you got to be watch what you say. And I finally one day I just kind of like, man, fuck it. I'm just gonna start being black, bro. Like you know what I mean. Like I'm just gonna be who I am. Like I don't want to be different 
on social media than what I am in l- real life. Like, and right. I remember initially my wife was like, "Yo, like you're gonna lose business," and I was like, and I just at, at the time I was like, I didn't care. I was like, I just because I felt like I'm not being genuine, right? And to that point now, when people see me, I am what I am, and right. I, you know, and it's where it actually didn't hurt business to help business because people knew I was genuine with it, you know. And I want my kids to see, damn, dad, he just he's who he is. He's he is in front of one one group and he's in front of another, group and he's just but he's always the same person. Right. You know, he's not he don't talk he don't switch up his conversation around other people. Like I don't switch up my conversation to make other people feel comfortable. Right. You know then they need to handle it. Yeah, you need to handle it. If you're not comfortable with the way I speak, then you, that's that's on you. That's not on me because I know I'm educated. And right. I know and I know I'm I'm brilliant in my own realm. So the way I speak is not indicative of whether or not I have knowledge. That's your prejudice, not my prejudice. I don't have to deal with that. You know? Right. Um and so I, I do, I love that, man. And I love, you know, the way, you know, you, 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 uh, you're raising your children, you know, it, it's cause you're an alpha man. That's all, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. one, one time for the good brothers, uh, even those who are, who went other directions, right. Yeah. And, and who made their own choices. And I know we're all topic quote unquote, but that kind of, to that perspective, it's like, Again, being genuine wins, and it's easy for us to sit back and criticize or assess objectively. Uh, Senator Scott and Vice President Harris, but again, I didn't represent it. I'm not the vice president, yeah. And so um, that's when I, that's why I take exception when Trump followers say, "Well, he's just been a normal guy." Well, my man or my sister, he's not a normal guy, right? Or she's a normal a normal woman, like she is the vice president. So. Yeah. There is, she has staff, she has preparation, she has expectations. So, and more importantly, we're, we're counting on you to deliver. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, that's a heavy burden for anybody to, to even, even think about shouldering, right? right. I shudder the thought of public life, right? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, that's why I'm a private citizen. Right. And I can make these comments. And as a private citizen, my obligation is to my family yeah. and it's to make sure that my son, my three daughters, uh, in partnership with my wife, um, have confidence um, and have like, you know, have understanding that, you know, being different does not be, mean being deficient yeah. by any means. And, you know, you, you can, this world is your oyster. You can do anything you want to do in this world and make sure that I align their opportunities so they can take advantage of what they want to do um, in life, whether it be, uh, academics, athletics, being creative. So whatever it's going to be, politics, uh, business, you know, philanthropy, whatever they want to do, yeah. but just give them exposure and an opportunity to access. Uh, but back to our elected officials, I mean, again, it's a heavy burden to always be on, mm. but that's what they ran for. Yeah. That's what we paid them for. And so well, you're a public, you're a public official. Like this yeah. is, this is, yeah. you decided to make, choose this career. So now exactly. you can't, you can't now run away from hard conversations and yeah. that's why I don't I don't like about it. Um, so I want to talk about a person who's going to be on the 2022 ballot. OK. Um, our current governor. OK. And, OK. Uh, you know, I'm going to play a clip from him. OK. Hold on. Here it is. Um, this proposition that we are a systemically racist country. Your reaction. Well, it's a bunch of horse manure. I mean, give me a break. This country uh, has had more opportunity for more people 
than any country in the history of the world. And it doesn't matter where you trace your ancestry from. We've had people that have been able to succeed and all. And here's the problem with things like critical race theory that they're peddling. They're basically saying all our institutions are, are bankrupt and they're, they're illegitimate. Okay, so how do you have a society if everything in your society is illegitimate? So it's a very harmful ideology, and I would say uh, really a, a race-based version uh, of, of a Marxist-type ideology. So we've banned it in our schools here in Florida. We're not going to put any taxpayer dollars to critical race theory, and we want to treat people as individuals, not as members of groups. Uh, I just want to say I hate to say I mean DeSantis I mean DeSantis I mean DeSantis I keep I, I keep messing up I keep messing up his name I'm sorry um, not sorry so <laughs> I can't stand him I okay. I you know when he got elected I told people I said he's his he's DeSantin I said he's DeSantin and people were like man no give him a chance and you know he's you know he's doing a lot of things I was like you know what let me tell you why he's just, he's DeSantin because I have a level of political and spiritual discernment. And what I do know about Satan, he always starts off a certain way. And it's like he's he's kind of patterning you a little bit, conditioning you a little bit. So then when he gets into his true personality, he'd be like, oh, I'm not I'm not a bigot. What do you mean? I did this. I have I've, I've put these people in certain positions. I've I've appointed these people, da, 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 da. you know, but he started off his campaign as, as a white supremacist. With the whole build your wall thing, and to me that was a that was a true testament of his character because he had no platform, so he cho- he jumped onto Trump's platform, and then when he got elected, he tried to take some of Andrew Gillum's platform because he really had no platform, and now he's you know he's again up for re-election, and he is leaning into a a Trumpian concept of governing and making crazy statements um to appease the red meat of his party and i am not a fan and i'm, I'm gonna we can get into critical race theory but uh what is your thoughts on the satan i mean desantis i mean the satan <laughs> um i don't know him personally so i can't speak to him as a person right um but i will say this um i think he's running for 2024 more than 2022 yeah i think he'll have a challenge in the primary, I mean, in the general election, but um, unless there's going to be, uh, you know, something that happens that moves the earth, I think he wins again. Part of the the reverse cultural effect with Biden winning in 2020 and on the state level, um, that created the opportunity for more uh, more jet fuel for him to get reelected in 2022 on the state level. But all of to say Biden, um, Biden lost Florida by four points. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah. and now. With Biden winning the election, right, that's going to bring his base out even stronger to say, you know what, let's not make let's make sure that we at least keep our state red as opposed a purple state red as opposed to had um, Trump won. I think he would have had a harder go politically because the the Democratic base would have been more enthused about coming out. Um, so all, all that to say, um, I think Biden gave them a, a pacifier to a degree, but that's more political theory than it to your answering your question. Um, it, he starts out with some truth by saying that there's been a lot of economic and development opportunity in this country for a, a, a group of people that were once so oppressed, but you can't nuance it. He didn't nuance it enough. He didn't go into detail. And that by itself, I mean, there have been great strides like from people from, from Madison C.J. Walker to Reginald Lowers on the 
even the President Obama, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't think any, I don't know any country in the world where a group of individuals were oppressed to that degree and destroyed and demonized, and then there's a president from that group of individuals, you know, 100 years later, right? Outside of that oppression, out, formalistically, then you have Jim Crow and vestiges of that and redline, all that's still taking place, right? So I think there's some truth there. However, um, he loses me when he says we're not going to do any critical race theory here. Um, you, you missed the opportunity. I mean, like when you travel outside of the U.S. Uh, and you go to places and you look at how they look at their history, like in Germany, they're very honest about Hitler and what yeah. happened there. Right. Yeah. And you can't just you can't wash it all away and say, no, what well, we're absolved again. Acknowledging race in America is not an indictment on you right. personally. Right. Unless you're racist, but you have to have an acknowledgement, right? Right. Uh, of the conversation. If I was, um, if I was once an alcoholic, I can't say, you know what, alcohol doesn't exist in the U.S. Right. You know what, it's a real thing, and here, here are the dangers of it, right? Right. Because you blind eye to it, you can't help other individuals who are who are trying to find a way out of darkness and who are suffering from alcoholism, mm-hmm. and that's a deteriorating deteriorating condition, and so. Race is the same way. If you try to step away from that and say, you know what? There's no racism in America. There's no issues in America. We don't need to assess. To, we don't need to critically think through these issues. At that point, you are allowing, um, you're allowing, um, you know, guilt by omission, which is unfortunate. I mean, I grew up in D.C. I never saw a Confederate flag in my life in person. Yeah. I saw with you. And my best friend was a, was a swimmer at FSU. And I got into a heated debate with a kid who had a Confederate flag. He said, no, it's my history. Yeah. I was like, no, bro, in your history, they were treasonous yeah. and they hated me. So, you know, we had a, for me, I, I did some learning. I was like, you know what? He was taught that that was his history, right? Yeah. And for me, I taught that was, they were, they were treasonous, right? And uh, they were terrorists on our soil. And so how do you balance that out? But by not having class about that, you lead people to, these platforms like, um, you know, these uh, back alley, dark web stuff, people get an education there. Yeah. If you have a conversation about it, it should be in the classroom with paid professionals to have true dialogue about this. And uh, as professors, as lawyers, as parents, we have biases, right? Mm-hmm. But at least have the conversation get started. So the first time a kid is hearing about the black experience is not from a rap video mm-hmm. or it's not from, you know, uh, his his mom or dad speaking ill of you know black community, right? It right. should be, if possible, in a classroom setting or in an academic setting where you say, you know what? This is what this is Jim Crow from this perspective, right? Mm-hmm. This is uh, you know, this is how I, I saw a clip last week and it made me almost just stop what I was doing when there was a white woman descri- describing slavery and she said slavery wasn't that bad. It was actually good for some slaves. I was like, yeah, where I the saw, hell I, I saw where, that. I saw that clip, yeah. Like, where does that come from? That comes from a lack of conversation. Well, listen, she said, uh, cause I think someone pressed her yeah. and they were like, you know, who, where'd you get that thought process that slavery wasn't that bad? And so, cause my, I was taught by my grand grandfather. Right. And you know, and so I'll, this is, here's a funny thing, right? I, this is kind of messed me up. I'm going somewhere with this. Uh, Harriet Tubman was alive when Ronald Reagan was born. Wow. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's right? Crazy, right? So think about that. Well, think what I just said. Ronald Reagan was born when Harriet Tubman was alive. Right. You know, and, you know, I, I say all that to say that 
racism in a sense or this not racism the world was not it's not that old like sometimes we like to think that you know um we like to think that it was such a long time ago but the fact that like Harriet Tubman was born when Thomas Jefferson was was alive and then you know Ronald Reagan was alive when Harriet Tubman was was alive it should show you that history is not that long ago. No, not at all. You know, and so, but so when somebody's being taught something about slavery right. from their grandparent, right. it's because their grandparent told them that, you know, wanted to recondition, reconstitute what slavery was. And this is what I said in my opening monologue that this is what happened in post reconstruction. There was this right. big movement to reconstitute, reconstruct the idea of slavery. Because they understood, they they knew from the inception when they brought it, it was a sin, right? They knew it was a sin, and so now once they had, once it became illegal, now they had to be like, well, we listen, we we have to um, refurbish the American ideal, and right. um, America is still in itself, even in post reconstruction, was still a very young country, still new country, you know, you know. And so they were still trying to figure what is America? What is Americanism? And part of that is creating a narrative about your history that's getting that's going to encourage patriotism. Right. And when you do stuff like that, you leave out the ugly parts of your history and you make people think of things in a fond fashion. So when you hear people say, I don't mind these Confederate statues because it's just our history. Why are we being so overly woke? Why are we being so, and it's like, no, you don't understand these Confederate statues went up because of the the concerted effort to whitewash your history, this history of this country. The door of the Confederacy, they pushed that agenda, right? They right. pushed it in the textbooks and monuments. And here's my thing, like, the, the monuments being up or down doesn't move me one way or the other. Mind you, I think the, the point behind it being put up was reprehensible, right, to whitewash history, right? Right. But the more important thing is, like, how do we get to a place where a person can look at it and say, you know what? He or she was flawed. They had issues. And how does it how, how did that impact where we are in society now? I, I said that to say this. So I was robbed at gunpoint in the city, right? Mm-hmm. Um, twice. And my my immediate reaction was one, alarm, um, you know, fear and concern, anxiety, angst, all the natural emotions that, that one goes through. I was having a life-changing event like that. Then I found out um, that the young men who robbed me, uh, they had no uh, no formal just exposure to, you know, I would say societal standards and values. Mom in prison, dad deceased, grandmother, uh, you know, in bad place, aunts and uncles in prison, one of the kids to be attempted murder charge the year before. And out of that, some empathy started growing to me saying no, empathy started growing to me saying, no, what they've been through such a hard life, all these things in their life. They, they're 17, 18 years old, you know? And so if I can have that consideration for someone who robbed me at gunpoint, when I see that white woman speaking to the idea of slavery was, wasn't that bad. After you get pointed past the point of the anger and frustration of saying, no, what, how can you make such a racist and insensitive comment? Let's unpack how you got there. Right. How are you a 40 plus year old woman? I'm assuming she was 40. And you still have this thought process that, you know, slavery wasn't that bad. Like, how do you get there? And mind you, I'm not out here saying, no, what, I'm, I'm going to hand her a tissue for her disposition. But I do want to, We until we have these conversations about race and about culture, 
which I think Governor DeSantis, by making those comments, he robs himself of the opportunity for growth and, and, and advancement by saying we shouldn't have critical conversations about race. You can't say, you know what, blacks are doing well, browns are doing well overall, so therefore there are no issues. Well, that's, that's, what, what, that's what they say, right? So they always say, yeah, how, can, how can there be racism because LeBron James is rich? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but LeBron right. James isn't taking care of kids in, in, uh, in Zone Six in Atlanta, right? Right. And so it's like it, it, you have, you have. I mean, for example, the I can't say that there's no opioid problem in, in the Midwest because Bill Gates is a multi-billionaire. That, yeah, facts. Yeah, that, that, that doesn't equate. Or right. there's a high HIV population rate in that because of intravenous drug use. Right. Um, so like, how do you have that honest conversation? And say, you know what, these are embassy issues, and I, and I thought that we made some advancement in how we looked at the opioid epidemic versus the crack epidemic. Right now, they're being treated with compassion and care in rehab, as opposed to you know life sentences in prison for first-time offenders, nonviolent drug offenders. Right, I thought we made some advancement in those areas, but unfortunately, we didn't make that advancement um, in those areas. Um, and so that's very disappointing on my part to see that you know. You would think that that would be an opportunity, but again, it was missed because it wasn't genuine. So here's the, here's the thing about the critical race theory, and I see your, your son. Hey, say, say hello, son. Hello. Hello. What's going on, man? Um, That's his bedtime, but we'll give him a pass tonight. <laughs> no doubt. Uh, the, the idea behind critical race theory and what they've been attacking is the idea of um, not having a true conversation on race. Right, and then seeing that having this conversation is, you know, indisputably racist, because you know if we, you know, you, you now you're being you're being racist by bringing up racism. <laughs> That's what they're saying, you know, right. and they're saying you're 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 not giving a full view of the beauty of this country. You're not giving you're you're being critical of you know a certain sector of America. You know, let's just say uh, white America, right? right? And now it's going to make people feel. It's going to make white people feel less than. It's going to make a, them. It's going to de- demonize them. It's going to make them, you know, less less than. And so I thought to myself, that's really f- a weird argument, because for generations, black parents have had to deal with lies and half truths and blatant omissions when it came to history that were taught to our children in schools, right? You know, and we had to deal with that. And that was okay. That was okay. That was fine. That, that, that nobody, nobody felt like that was a problem. Nobody right. felt like, hey, what did we, when we're teaching for 150 years, we're going to teach, you know, we're going to teach race in a certain way. What is that going to do to the, the, uh, the, the, the mental, you know, the, me- the mental uh, acuity of black people and how they see themselves in the society, you know, and, you know, and the same thing goes for women and the same thing goes for, you know, um, Hispanics and, and Mexican and, uh, um, Latinos, you know, so that was never that, see, that was never a problem. But once now we start having a holistic idea of, or viewpoint of race, now it's like, well, we don't want to make, we don't want to make them a certain race feel less than because we don't want to attack, be attacking. Right. And that's, I mean, go ahead. No, no, no. I'm agreeing with you. It's hard to be in the hot seat, bro. I mean, you're married. I mean, I mean, you have, you've had, I'm assuming 
I don't assume for you, but I can say for myself, I've had very uncomfortable conversations with my wife about my own behavior. Yeah. Right. And it's frightening to hear, you know what, how my well-intentioned behavior caused her harm and caused her hurt. Right. And not saying that, you know, that we have a parental or even a intimate relationship where one is the dominant or weaker spouse in my, in my marriage. I'm just saying like, that's a real conversation. And for, um, and for white Americans or black Americans or brown Americans to have a true conversation, it, it has to be real. It has to be genuine. And this whole idea of this, we, we say we're not a, a religious country by, you know, by constitutional uh, definition, but we have a Christian ethos, not acknowledging the wounds is antithetical to the idea of, you know, Christian principles. Right. I mean, we, we have Easter Sunday, right? Right. We have Christmas, right? That's about resurrection. It's about forgiveness. It's about reconciliation and the idea of, you know, an idea of an advancement of a culture. So I don't see how, I mean, imagine ha- telling there'll be no Easter Sunday without the death of Christ. Right. Right. And so how, how do you say that? And again, I'm not comparing the, the black struggle with, you know, you know, the death of Christ. And they're saying like, at the end of the day, how do you have a conversation in this country about the history of the U.S. by bifurcating out realities that happen? Because mm-hmm. to your point, they've been washed over. Right. They've been misrepresented. Like, how much power would it give folks in Louisiana to know that uh, uh, during Reconstruction they had they had representation in Congress, right? Mm-hmm. They had a black guy running for governor in Louisiana. Like they had thriving businesses, right? Right. But they're not taught in schools. It's just taught after slavery, black folks with this sharecropping. Yeah. They, they, they skip a whole section of history. Right. About that restructured period where you have members of Congress, right? You have you had doctors, you have lawyers, you had thriving businesses, you had, I mean, Tulsa, Oklahoma. You had uh, you know, all these things that happen, but that's not taught traditionally in school. So we're not coming out to say, you know what, to say, hey. And history will say all white men are bad, all white women, white men are bad. We say, no, no, what? This is what happened. It's, rea- and, it's the reality of it. Exactly. And then the same thing you mentioned with Germany, like Germany acknowledges their history. Right. And they're very whole for it. Right. You know, and there, there's, people are not walking around Germany like, I feel less German because I could <laughs> because of the ugliness of my history. Right. right. But that's what right. that's what the propaganda is when they talk about critical race theory or the anti-critical race theory um, is that. You know, if we teach these things, people are going to start having a lesser, less patriotic view of the country. And we can't have that. You know, it's anti-American. You know, and then they talk about Marxism. And, and, and he's, it, 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 it's these intellectually dishonest conversations where they start using these unrelatable terms. It's Marxist to talk about. <laughs> it's like, what, what? that's an economic principle. What yeah. the hell does that even have to do with history, uh, with race? You yeah. know, but what that's that's a dog whistle, though. It, it, it sounds great. It sounds great. It makes people say, "Now what? You know what? As Marxism? Oh hell no, not with it." Someone don't know what that means, right? Yeah. And so, to people, portion of the electorate will say, "Now what? The critical race theory is to your point. That's Marxism. So therefore, I'm against it." Right. What are you really against about learning about your true culture and your true heritage and your true history? Because you embrace the Confederate flag, my man or my sister. You you embrace that wholeheartedly. Right. But you, do you actually understand what goes behind that flag? Right. Oh, that's the that's the equivalent of someone coming out right now. I mean, you know, bringing a flag out that we're with, with someone we're war against. Like that'd be equivalent in two thousand two, someone coming out with a Osama bin Laden flag. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, like they were trying to tear down our union. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, whether intentions are irrelevant, the bottom line was they wanted to destroy the union. They wanted to destroy it for their own advancement of their own ideas. Whether you agree or disagree, at the end of the day, they were terrorists. Right. Um, and again, you haven't, I'm going to give example. My, my great grandfather shot Marcus Garvey, right? Mm. That doesn't mean that I'm against Marcus Garvey. He shot, this is, this is, I'm not, this is not, I'm not making, it's not made up. Uh, he shot him because he thought Marcus Garvey was stealing from him. Mm. And so my sister has a handwritten note that he wrote about Marcus Garvey Which being. probably was. His own, <laughs> yeah, his own opinion, right? right. And, he, and he was, he was, uh, he had his own issues, right? But I'm not ashamed of that. It doesn't make me less of a human being. Right. I'm not black because that happened. I'm just saying, like, that's part of my history and my heritage. Right. And to the point as a community, we can have these conversations about race and say, you know what? My grandfather was this. My grandmother was this. But this is who I am. And this is what I believe America should be. We, can, we can't do that until we move forward. And we can't do it absent these conversations. Mm-hmm. It's like having children and not telling your children about your history. Right. And then expecting them to progress. Right. Expecting them to to get further than you in life. Right. But you don't want to tell them anything about you. Right. Right. And so then they're making mistakes and they're like, well, damn, dad, you never told me that not to do this. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I I could have told you that that wasn't going to work because I did that 30 years ago. And that's (laughs) that's not the move, son. You know, that's not the move, daughter. Like, you know, it's you know, and even like I could have been better. You could have told me maybe I shouldn't have done that. You right. Know, and that's what happens when you have these anti intellectual conversations. Honestly, what's happening is the conservatives have taken on this anti educational, anti college, mm-hmm. you know, it's this thing of the, the I they said colleges are the bastion of liberal liberal agenda and all mm-hmm. these other things. And it's like what you're really saying is that you don't want to have diverse conversations. You know, you don't really you're afraid of the diverse conversations because in the I, I you know, conservatism financially might be a thing, but conservatism socially is not a, as far as talking about history, is it's pretty, it's an antiquated understanding of history. Because mm-hmm. you have to be able to have a holistic conversation about the, both the beautiful, beautiful parts and the ugly parts of history. Mm-hmm. You know, and when you're anti, anti-education, anti-intellectual, you start moving away from that holistic conversation. Um, you know, so, I mean, that's just my little, you know, uh, 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 spiel on that. So I, what I do want to uh, mention, by the way, I just want to say for, um, I found it interesting that former President uh, George uh, W. Bush said that the Republican Party has to move away from the uh, what did he say? He said the anti or excuse me, the Protestant white Christian male Protestant ideology, because they're going to yeah. they're going to end up being an antiquated in their um, in their appeal. And they're going to go the way of the dodo, you know. <laughs> and so, like, he called it the, the he said the, that the GOP right now stands for white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism. And that's not going to win them anything in, in the future. They have to move away from that because society is growing. And I thought that was a very interesting quote from the former president. And that's yeah. from President Bush. Right. You know, President Bush of Kanye said, you know, doesn't like black people. That that president. 
I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, I think, I think he's seen and has been, and been exposed to a lot of things in this world. And if anything, this again, I don't know personally, this is my assumption, his relationship with President Obama, uh, the former first lady, uh, Mrs. Obama, that may have shaped his perspective. A lot of times it's not about people's worldviews change when you have exposure. So yeah. back to the point of education and instruction, I taught at Howard University uh, as an adjunct professor on the undergraduate side. And there were times we talked about rich issues like Plessy versus Ferguson. And I was like, you know what? I wish we had white students in the class to have a perspective here or Asian students in the class to have a different perspective or, or brown students in the class to have a different perspective because being in a environment where it's all monolithic, seemingly on the surface level of thought is dangerous, whether it be conservative, whether it be liberal, you're going to have a balanced view, a balanced worldview. And um, I was at UF when we discussed Plessy versus Ferguson where there were three other black people in the classroom. So I, I think his, I wish we had more conservative professors at HBCUs. Um, I wish we had other places as well to have a true conversation, to have a true dialogue. So, I mean, I think President Bush is speaking from a, from a pulpit of, from President Bush rather of, you know what, the way that the world was when my father's father was an oil man in Texas has changed. Right. And so how do we adapt? How do we, you know, adjust ourselves to be a part of this new, new developing world? Yeah. Uh, it's not, I mean, like, just look in the classrooms, right? I mean, the woman outpaced men is insane. Yeah. Uh, especially, um, I mean, HBCUs. I mean, so the idea that of uh, this patriarchal society where men have all the power to the, the, the investment, to the religious, uh, uh, environments and in, into political environments, that's over. That's done. That that's that's dead. That's, that's, that's not coming back. So I think President Bush is right on. And the question is, how does the Republican Party find its way po- in the post-Trump era, which is crazy to say, but how does it find its way to really connect with this new change in electorate, electorate, and also just demographic across our country? Yeah. Uh, and the Democratic Party, they're just saying, hey, look. We're not going to offend you. We're not going to give you anything. I'm not going to offend you. So it's like, it's a tough conversation. Um, I think, uh, 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 what's his name? The former President Clinton's um, advisor, um, Steve Carvel. Uh-huh. He, yep. he, he talked about that. Um, wokeism, it's killing um, killing pol- political ideology under, under Democratic Party. Um, which kind of goes into what I wanted to talk about. It's my, the last point, and then we can end on this. I'm going to play a clip from Tucker Carlson. If you're over 40, you may have trouble recognizing your own country. It's just too unfamiliar. Now, the self-righteous children on social media don't care to notice this. And when they do, they dismiss it, any complaint about change, as bigotry. But it's not bigotry. It's human nature. Abrupt change causes social chaos, always. Human beings develop customs and habits and generational expectations for a reason. It's not random. Continuity is comforting to people. If you eliminate familiar things overnight, societies fracture. Populations tend to explode. We've seen that happen. The last industrial revolution, in the end, provoked armed revolutions. Hundreds of millions of people died. Germany got Hitler. Eastern Europe got Stalinism. Yes, we did wind up with antibiotics in the end. You can thank technology for that, and we do. 
But we also got genocide and atomic bombs. There's a lesson here. If you're going to change things, go slowly. Choose the incremental over the immediate. Explain yourself as you do it. Reassure people. Acknowledge the reality of evolutionary biology. It is real. Human beings are not born to be machine components. You can't just bang out improved versions of your citizens on a 3D printer. People in real life are complicated and stubborn and hard to control. Even the most open-minded ones get jumpy when suddenly everything's different. Obviously, and you'd think it would be obvious. Wise leaders would know that intuitively. If you're going to have relentless technological change, and apparently we are, you cannot inflict relentless social change and expect your society to survive. Things will fall apart if you do that. That's guaranteed. Yet that is exactly what our leaders are currently doing. They're changing everything, whether we like it or not. A new language, new values, new biology, new curricula, new social mores and hiring standards and body types. A brand new national population. There's a lot of bullshit that was in there, right? It was such, it was layered with such bullshit. There was nothing, there was nothing legitimate in that. And one of the things I would say, not one, of many things. I don't know how he jumped from the, he jumped from the industrial revolution to Nazism and then say, well, we got vaccines, so that was great. And so, it's just like Tucker Carlson is, is a nouveau idiot. You know, he just he's he's so dangerous. I wouldn't call him, I, I, that point is true. He's very dangerous, but I wouldn't call him an idiot. He's he's very actually very skillful in his approach because he he messages his, he brands his message in such a way it's deceptive often mm. and very insidious in nature. But it appeals to your point earlier about not wanting change and to go and keep the, the old guard. Like that's like a brave heart call right there. Like he's like saying, you know what? Not in the sense of like the same idea of, of advocating for change, but saying, hey, stand your ground. Yeah. We're not going anywhere. Let it happen slowly. Um, and I mean, I, they're very. He wouldn't say that to his accountant about interest, right? Or he wouldn't say not his accountant, but his CPA or his business advisor. They say, you know what? You can get 8%, but it's going to take you 10 years to get 8% of your money. He would say, you know what? Give it to me now. Is it, and Give it to me. Don't, 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 slow roll, don't slow roll my investment, right? Right. And so I, I say from a societal perspective, like, we each day we are evolving. And then the question is, what are we evolving, evolving into? And so Mr. Carlson, uh, I'm, I'm disappointed, um, not because of his rhetoric, but because of the lack of foresight he has for the impact of his words. Yeah. Um, and they are landing squarely where he wants them to land. But I think it does more harm than good because at the end of the day, it just creates more division than it does unity. Um, so, yeah, I don't think he's an idiot. I think he's extremely intelligent, but he's also very, very, very deceptive. And he hits, that's why he's on the news that he's entertaining. Yeah. I watch his show sometime, not because of, as a fan, but more so just to give a reality check for what other folks are saying about what I believe to be true as far as what, what has to happen as far as race and politics and economics. Yeah. Um, because it's disappointing. And sometimes I have to been, grin and bear it, especially around election coverage time. It was like, wow, man. And then with the Derek Shelton piece, uh, the comments he made there were just extremely just disappointing. And I shouldn't be disappointed because that's where he comes from. But it's like, 
you can't, this can't be real. He used that same argument right there on Derek Sheldon by saying, you know what, they were bullied into a, gu- a guilty verdict. Yeah, right. And actually, DeSantis said the same thing. It's, yeah. They were bullied into a, a guilty verdict because they were afraid of the reaction right. had they had they actually not convicted him. Right. And 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 then, I mean, I'm just saying, like, how, how juvenile is that approach? And it, it shifts the conversation from saying, Police brutality and race and systemic racism to, you know, what is this uh, this shift in momentum on race truly a, a good or bad thing? And so we can't have we can't have an honest conversation because you're focusing on, you know, things that are ancillary but not the real issue here. And by saying we have to, we have to keep America the same, it has to be slow over time. It's too fast all at once. If that's your perspective, okay, I hear you, but. What about things that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis from policing to banking to where we live at to pay equity like that can't wait don't slow drip that so here's the thing you can't, he wants social change to be slow and episodic mm-hmm. but if that was if according to him then we would have we still would be in jim crow Exactly. You know, like society hasn't changed. We got to let things. So he doesn't. It's it's more important for the pain to happen over a long period of time than the people who are benefiting to be caught with the right. truth. And right. that is what privilege is. And yeah. that's what really white supremacy is. White supremacy is 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 the idea that one group or one culture is better or more dominant than the other. And that's what we and that's what I think we have to have the honest conversation. What is white supremacy? And so, and then, you know, they, they go into these things of wokeism and all these things of that nature and how it's dangerous and things of that nature, you know, and, and they say tack on wokeism as a, this political dog whistle um, because God forbid people have a better understanding of the world, world around them. Right. You know, and it's like wokeism is, you know, it's not a, it's not a thing. There's no thing. Nobody's woke. It's just you learn. You're, you're what you are is you're more educated, <laughs> and you have a better understanding of people. Yeah, and I would even say the the on a, on the flip side, the folks who are at these Trump rallies that they feel they're woke too to their to their own agenda, right? Right. And is <clears throat> I just say, how do you have a true and honest conversation? When the whole premise is based on a reality that, you know, we have to keep the status quo, otherwise it falls apart. And if you if you go that route, then you are you miss the opportunity for advancement. And um, it's, it's truly unfortunate. And um, Tucker Carlson. I mean, you, you go back and forth, you go back and forth with your position and I argue to say Don Lemon has some of the same you know, perspectives as far as saying this is my worldview and it shouldn't be changed at all. And this is your world. Your worldview is wrong because it's not like my worldview. But I mean, put him in the classroom and have a conversation. I'll, I'll, I'll say this. My first year at law school, um, there was a kid from a pretty prestigious uh, undergrad P- PWI institution. And he said to me, he said, well, when I was at this school, we remained nameless. All the black kids were separate by themselves. They never wanted to uh, be around the population because they felt as if he had his own speculation about it. He never engaged them at all. This was his speculation after four years, I'm assuming, of completing an undergrad degree from this very prestigious institution. 
But we had a some, we had a Boston meeting, the Black Law Student Association meeting. So I said, man, come on in the room. Come on in, check out. I mean, Black Law Student Association meeting. Come on, check it out. There was one other white guy in the room, and he walked in the room, and he was in the back right hand corner. This kid walked into the room and beeline to the back of the classroom. And after the meeting was over, I was like, hey, bro. I mean, why did you separate yourself that way? Why did you go to the back corner and being that? I mean, I, I felt like you were trying to separate yourself. You weren't. Like you were better than everybody else. He took that very because of that conversation, we didn't have a relationship for a period of time after that. But it was his first time being a minority in the environment. Mm. And I, I was on I, I was I really I truly believe that if the majority is made to feel a minority sometime and the minority like the majority, that's true, that's true for true advance that builds empathy and perspective. Yeah. And far too often we are in our own silos, whether it be black, white, brown. Uh, you know, yellow or in between that we don't have a point for nexus and back to your original premise of how do we have advancement? And I think it's through discussions on critical race theory. I think it's through discussions on our history and our heritage. I think it's being honest, our leaders being honest about our past and our history. Yeah. But until that happens, you're going to have people beeline to the back of the classroom and be with their own people. Yeah. Their own their own gender, sexual, sexual preferences or their own religious orientation. And mind you, I'm, I'm not saying everybody has to feel the way I feel about Malcolm X, right? Right. Or, or about the Black Panther Party giving our free lunches of individuals starting a school program about Fred Hampton. Everyone has to have that banner, right? Right. We all must have some point of recognition of saying, you know what? This is why you feel that way. I may feel this way, but how do we make America, America a better place for our children, for our businesses, for our family, and for our parents as they get older? And we don't get there by putting our head in the sand, like the governor recommended. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to end it on that, man. Okay. <laughs> I think that's dope, man. I, yo, you, you, you know, I think that's a, that's a perfect way. Like, we, we don't move forward by just, you know, continuing to put our head in the sand and not, um, you know, trying to engage with one another, man. So, listen, bro, I appreciate you so much. For uh, joining the podcast, man, and listen, I actually want to have a conversation with you when you do move to, move to uh, Costa Rica and just talk about being black in an environment like that. Yeah, you know, we'll we'll I'll clean it up on that, but um, I think that'll be a dope pod if you're interested. Without question, uh, brother Williams, man. I mean, thank you for having this platform. I mean, whether you agree disagree, what you said, what I said, um, we agreed on and- a lot though. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel you. And I mean, but it should be un- it should be uncom- uncomfortable at times, bro. I mean, so without question, I look forward to future conversations. Thank you for taking it. I mean, you're a lawyer, you're a husband, you're a father, um, but this is important to you and not many of us in our community, black, white, brown, whatever else, um, go after your passion. This is something you're serious about and you're taking time out of your day to do this. And so I thank you for having this conversation and it advanced the idea of, Conceptually, conceptually, at least, of having a more unified country and unified voice about what it means to be, uh, you know, open and inclusive of all people. No doubt, bro. How can people find you on um, uh, social media? On social media, um, you can hit me up at Biavo. Um, that's B I A D V O. Um, that's on Facebook. That's on Instagram. That's on Twitter. Um, and you hit me up that way. We help people co-parent in a better, in a more effective fashion. And that's just strictly for Maryland, or can you that work for you know all different uh, states? The, the, cool, the 
Um, we have advice across the country. And the cool thing is our agreement that we have online, our co-parenting course gives individuals the tools and resources to co-parent effectively. So let's say you're in California and you're tired of paying a lawyer to work out your agreement. You come to us on our platform, do our worksheet, buy your agreement with the court, and it's all done. We're not giving you legal advice. We're giving you forms to resolve your issues um, so that you can file your own agreement independently and have ownership of the co-parenting process. So whether you're in California, Texas, New York, you can use our services. We're not giving you legal advice. We're not giving you legal services. We are giving you an opportunity to resolve your issues without having to pay the costly fees of lawyers and anxiety at trial. Okay. That's dope, bro. Um, give out the website one more time to be disengaged. It's biavo.com. B-I-A-D-V-O.com. All right. And that's the only way they can reach you? They can reach you by phone number? Oh, phone number. Yeah. Um, you can call our office 240-393-4935. All right. No doubt. No doubt. All right, y'all. So I appreciate y'all for listening to this podcast. Again, if you liked it, please share the, the pod. And, um, you know, right now we're going right out. So. All right. Peace, brother. Thank you. Yep.